continue today in the Sermon on the Mount, which is where we've been since forever and where we will be until the fall, maybe. Um, not like the fall of man that happened back in the day, but like the fall is in the forthcoming season. See what we did there? That's called Bible humor. I'm stalling as I put a clock, a stopwatch here, and open up our teaching text, which comes from Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 24. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Verse 22, the eye is the lamp of the body, and if your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You can have a seat. So uh, right before the pandemic broke out, if you can think back to 2020, The Atlantic, which is kind of like a long-form journalism magazine, had released its March issue. And in its March issue, one of the opening lines to an article read this. Americans love to talk about how Americans hate to talk about money. So hear this again and see if this strikes as true for you. Americans love to talk about how Americans hate to talk about money. Is that true for any of you in the room? Is that like one of those foreboding things? You just do not talk about this? Well, uh, when the journalist of this article, Joe Pinkster, asked around, he's asking um, people who think about this, like sociologists, he asked this one sociologist, Rachel Sherman, to kind of weigh in on why is it that we are so anxious when it comes to the topic of money. And she made this interesting observation. See, apart from actually naming the dollar amount of like your annual salary or what you make per hour, we actually talk a ton about money. We're constantly talking around money. And she notes this. She says, every day, conversations are filled with questions about what we buy, what so-and-so does for a living, where they went to school, and subjects like it, things that are adjacent to money, or at least help us to understand where someone may fall in a class structure. What, what brand is that? What, what clothing is that? Things like this. We're constantly talking about this, but direct speech about how much someone makes still remains taboo in most cultures. There's actually a, um, an exception to this. If you live in rural Pennsylvania, which is maybe more blue collar, they will have no problem telling you the amount of money that they make, but then there's different taboos related to money. So, th- so my point is largely that this issue of money carries baggage. It carries a weight for us, especially in the context we live in. And if you found yourself uh, feeling like maybe a little tightness in your chest, maybe you're like, oh, the air is on, but I'm a little flush. We're about to talk about money. Because you get nervous about this, well, gird your loins, folks, <laughs> because this is what we're talking about today. Jesus is about to trample all over our taboos. Some scholars estimate that approximately 25% of Jesus' teaching has to do with money. Could you imagine? Every fourth Sunday, we're up in here talking about money. 
two things would happen. Either our church would just like diminish smaller than it already is, and it would be like four of us in here. Or, um, I don't know, it would be like prosperity, something God would, I don't know, something crazy would happen. It would be divisive is my point. 25%. Could you imagine that? Every four Sunday, I've been at Gateway for just over two and a half years, uh, which is just shy of Jesus's public ministry of about three years. I have not once done a sermon series on money or a top, like a teaching on, on money. 25% of Jesus's teachings are about money. This is the first one I've done. So just like do a little compare and contrast there. And it is staggering how much Jesus talked about money. And you might be wondering, well, why? Like, why would Jesus give so much time and attention and energy to talk about money? Like, he's not moving or like leading a movement to plant more synagogues. By the way, that wasn't a thing. And Jesus isn't doing like a capital campaign for the kingdom of God. This is just not what Jesus is doing. So why is he talking so much about money? Well, we actually see it in our teaching text. You, you can get kind of the gist of why Jesus is talking about money in verse 21. Track your eyes to this. And we're, we're going to kind of work our way around this passage, but we'll start here in verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, what fills our hearts leads our lives. Or as St. Clair of Assisi, who is this medieval saint, she put it this way, we become what we love and who we love shapes what we become. We become what we love, and who we love shapes what we become. Because what fills our hearts leads our lives. So to track with what Jesus is doing here in verse 21, just rewind with me to the beginning of this passage, picking up in verse 19, and just notice the imagery that Jesus is trafficking in. Jesus is talking about what? He's talking about treasure. He's talking about heaven and earth. He's talking about pests, as you do in the Bible. He, he's talking about destruction. All of this mashed into a few words. Just think about that imagery for a little bit longer. Where does that imagery feel potent? Does it feel potent with your coworker? Probably not. Like, it, it feels okay in church spaces, like a community group or a gathering like this or a sidebar conversation with somebody who you know is, like, down with the way of Jesus. You can say words like treasure, and they mean something because of Jesus' words. But if you go to your coworker or you send a message on Slack, like, where are you storing up your treasures? They will likely laugh at you and think you're weirder than they already think you are. Now, the truth is you might be weirder than they think you are, and that's okay, but, but that level of conversation, a level about talking about treasures is just an abstraction. Like, what, the, what are you talking about? Because my guess is treasures is immediately like pirate ships and kids shows. It's not about something that could like have this long-term impact on your heart. And so to get at why Jesus' words are so potent let me just offer us or really remind us of some of the context that we're working with here because Jesus is not in 2022. Yes, he is alive and active, like alive from the grave. Yes, when Jesus is speaking in this passage, he's in the first century and he's living in the shadow of a figure by the name of Herod the Great. Herod the Great ought to sound familiar if you've been around the Bible. Mostly we hear about Herod around like Christmas time and stuff like that. But the reason that Herod is called great is because of the scale at which Herod built. Think of things like the temple in Jerusalem. That, that's Herod who's pushing that forward. Whole cities are driven forward by the ambition of Herod. But the way that Herod built 
was through this really intense taxation system. It's, it's estimated that anywhere between 80 and 90% of the population in that time is agricultural. That is, they are making their living from the ground and what the ground can produce. And in that context, there is a standard tax that Herod offers on all grain that comes through. And in, it's anywhere between 23 and 30%. So just, you have your harvest, and let's just say 25, a quarter of what you've harvested goes to Herod. In the same, in the same time, let's say you're a fisher person, a fisherman or a fisherwoman, 50% of all that you catch goes to Herod. So just play this out. You're out all night fishing. You come in, you have quite a sizable catch. You come into shore, you haul your nets in, you do all of this, you prepare your fish to market, but before you go there, you stop by a booth. And at that booth is a representative of Herod, and Herod is then going to take half of everything you have. How does that feel, Americans? Well, if we were Canadian, we'd be like, yeah, we need good infrastructure, like take half of it. Here, take 75%, why not? See, this, on top of that, there would be more than just grain and fish. There's a tribute tax that would go to Rome, another 12.5% on your grain. There is a transit tax, a market exchange tax, a temple tax. And then within the temple structure, there are special offerings. How are we doing here? Your 50% has been diminished. By the way, that uh, tax collector can just take whatever they think is fair for their share as well. So, you're left with what remains. And it's in this context that Jesus drops this line, do not store up for yourselves treasures in heaven here on earth. And at one level, this is kind of funny. I, I could imagine somebody in the crowd kind of thinking, <laughs> like, what treasure are you talking about, Jesus? Herod Rome and the temple institution has taken everything I have. What treasure are you talking about? So at one level, it's funny, but at another level, this is deathly serious because Jesus is functionally dismissing money. He, he's actually interested in the effect that money has on your heart. So money is this neutral thing in Jesus' imagination. It's the way that it acts upon our life and animates our life because what fills our heart leads our life. That will be a line you hear me say time and time again. If you take notes, write that thing down. What fills your heart leads your life. And remember, the heart in the biblical imagination is not just this muscle that pumps blood through your body. Your heart is the center of who you are. It's the center of your mind and your will or your intellect. You can actually use this. I, I'm, I don't remember grammar all that well. I think it's metonymy where a part is used to talk about the whole, like you say, hey, you got some nice wheels. What are you talking about? Someone's car. You talk about your heart. It is to talk about you. Jesus is concerned not just with this anatomical thing or what it can do, but about you when he's talking about the heart because it's the center of who you are. And that center is then linked up with your treasure. So what is a treasure? Well, well, surely treasure has to do with possessions, but your treasures are not your possessions alone. How are we doing? So your treasures have to do with some of the stuff that you have, but it's not the stuff that you have. And instead, treasure, as Scott McKnight will say, kind of refers to the accumulation of things as the focal point of our joy. 
It's, it's where we actually will find delight. And, and when things have become the focal point of our joy, we call them treasures. It's, it's, it's nested within this is this spirit or drive to acquire. And so when Jesus is talking about not storing up your treasures here on earth, but up in the heavens, this is not Jesus being stingy and quite, quite the opposite. Jesus, I think, wants us to possess something that is unfading and imperishable, not something that can be corroded or eaten away. Have any of you ever had like moth holes in your clothes? I don't know if I ever have, but what I've heard and what I learned through Google is that the moths don't eat your clothes as you wear them. They eat your stuff when they're stored away. That it's like, I've acquired these things. They will be my joy, but then they just decay and die. Jesus wants to avoid that decay and have something imperishable. It, um, it can sound scandalous, but Jesus actually wants to bless you with things that last there's something beautiful on offer that Jesus is inviting us into, but I just want to pause here. Like, is this how you imagine Jesus? Do you imagine Jesus as the one who wants to, like, lavish you with blessings? It can make us uncomfortable when the dominant story of our day is, like, take and store up, but that's the same story on offer in Jesus' day. And Jesus comes with these words to like exercise that hoarding spirit from these people, and I think from you and me as well, which means in some sense that I am accusing some of us, if not all of us, from being bombarded by a hoarding spirit. Because for Jesus, money is about far more than money. It, it comes to bear on the contents of our hearts because what fills our heart leads our life. And, and so to get at our hearts, Jesus is going to then talk about eyes and lamps. So are you ready to go with Jesus to your eyeballs and some lamps? Because he wants to talk about your heart, but he's going to do it in a different way. When Jesus says this in verse 22, the eye is the lamp of the body. And if your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? When Jesus says the eye is the lamp of the body, he's not trying to be sneaky. He's not trying to like misdirect you or be mysterious. He's just speaking in the manner of his day. You see, if, if you've uh, been following along here, or if you are in the NIV, uh, you'll make this note. In verses 22 and 23, there's a footnote. And if you're reading in the ESV, it's not there. I don't know why, it's just not. But you'll notice this on, with the words healthy and unhealthy. Does anybody have like an actual paper Bible with them that's the NIV at the moment? No, if not, okay, let me just tell you. The words that'll be in that footnote, if you have a Bible app, it, I think, does the same things. You just, like, press the little button, and then it populates something on the screen. The words that are beneath this word are generous and stingy. In other words, you could read this passage like this. If your eyes are generous, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are stingy, then your whole body will be full of darkness. In other words, this is less a claim about like how you're seeing or lamps or things like that and more a statement about how you see the world. Over time, this little statement became kind of like a euphemism, a way to talk about how you live in and see the world. Do you see the world through a lens of abundance, light, or do you see the world through a lens of scarcity and darkness? See, abundance postures itself 
to receive. Like, like the fundamental posture of abundance is open hands, and the fundamental posture of scarcity is closed hands. So abundance postures itself to receive because it has at its core the idea that our Heavenly Father's fundamental disposition toward you and me and all of creation is that of generosity. Is this hard to believe for anybody? That like the, our Father, the, the God who Jesus called Father is fundamentally generous? See, if you, if you live that way, then somebody in the first century would say that you have a healthy eye. On the opposite side, if you live from a scarcity mindset, that is, you see the world as kind of this bleak space where you, it's kind of competition, you better go get yours before they get it because then there's gonna be nothing left. This maybe sounds more familiar. If that's the way, if that's the animating energy of your life, then a first century Jew like Jesus might say that you have a dark eye or an unhealthy eye that leads to darkness. Because how we see the world eventually shapes how we live in the world. If we see the world and the God whom we are seeking to follow through Jesus and empowered by the Spirit as fundamentally generous, therefore we have this posture of abundance, not scarcity or lack, it helps us to reimagine what we have and what we do not have. Or again, St. Clair of Assisi, we become what we love and who we love shapes what we become. This is all about how you see the world. Jesus is talking about your posture in the world related to your heart and how you see it. Where your treasures are will shape your imagination about the abundance or the scarcity of the world and the God that you follow. See, the, the, the contents of our hearts, like what we give our time and our attention to, it really shapes who we become because it shapes our affections, which drive our ambitions and signals our allegiance. So our affections, they're going to drive our ambition. What we love is going to shape ultimately what we want to give ourselves to, which is our treasures. And if you want to know like a simple diagnostic of like, which, which way do I view the world? Do I view the world with abundance or do I do, view the world with scarcity? Uh, just try this question on, what constitutes a well-lived day for you? Like when you get home in the evening, or maybe you work second or third shift and so you get home just, I don't know, the sun is up now. What makes a particularly day good or bad? Is, is it productivity? Like if you crushed your to-do list, you even added some items and then you crushed those ones and it was a really good day? Is, is that it? Or maybe it's approval. Your, your, your friends or your boss or I don't know, that, that parent at the playground said something about you or with respect to you that really just pumped up your ego. Is that what constitutes a good day? See, at the end of the day, what holds sway over our life is the, is the question here in front of us. What constitutes a well-lived day? Have you ever th thought about that? Have you thought about that lately? This is me, like, rhetorically giving you an opportunity to think about that, by the way. This is what we're doing in teachings. This is all meant to move us towards allegiance to Jesus. Have you thought about what fills your heart? 
I, um, this doesn't really, I really like rap music. I don't know why. Maybe it's the beat or something when it like, just something, the rhythm. I, I can't dance, but I like to dance. All these things, I like to exercise to it. But what I notice is as I'm exercising to this, like the language, the speech gets into me. I don't know why this is the case, but have you just inspected, interrogated your life? Like what is filling my heart and is it starting to come through? If you thought about what fills your heart, cue Jesus' words, the final words in our teaching text where we're going to spend the rest of our time. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Just first off the bat, I think that many of us recoil at the idea of Jesus as master. Maybe for you, um, like for me, it's harder to receive God as father. I'm down with Jesus as master. Like that's a little bit easier for me based on my family of origin and stuff. But at some level, master language is uncomfortable, especially in a, in a nation where we are riddled with a history of slavery. So this is just something we have to be aware of, that there are dynamics of master and servant at work here in Jesus' imagination that can actually restore people to dignity, not demean them. So let's just keep that in our imagination. Jesus is here confronting us with what? He's confronting us with singular devotion. You cannot serve two masters. There is a singular devotion. And in this case, it's either God or money. It's not a both and, it is an either or. And I, I would hope at this point in the Sermon on the Mount, because we've like worked through the Beatitudes and we've heard Jesus' call to singular devotion time and time again, that this ought not be surprising. Oh yeah, this is what Jesus does. He's calling me toward ultimate allegiance in all facets of my life. And at the same time, I think that I'm like, okay, Jesus, I'm, I'm down with these aspects of my life kind of coming into greater devotion to you. But when I start to interrogate my finances, things start to get a little sticky. And now I'm just going to assume I'm the only one in this room for whom this is true, and I'll keep going. That at some point when I start to interrogate my motives, like Jesus is actually interested in this area of my life, it makes me a little uncomfortable. So here Jesus again, and just like check in with what's going on, like pay attention to your response. No one can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money, or as the King James puts it aptly, you cannot serve both God and mammon. Just by a show of hands, how many of you hear the word mammon and know exactly what I'm talking about? You're, there's like, like seven of us who are raising their hands. Daniel's raising his hands with good hope and faith that he knows exactly what it is. By the way, on the internet, Daniel's like a teenager and he's a bit persnickety, so there you go, Daniel. So what are we talking about when we're talking about mammon? Well, well man, money is general. It can deal with finances. It can deal with investments. It can deal with currencies. But mammon is specific. See, for Jesus, mammon wasn't just one ungodly thing among many like pride or injustice or abuse or something like that, adultery. Instead, mammon is a direct competitor to God. So what we get is sexuality, pride, power. They can all compete for our affections. But mammon distinctly competes for our allegiance. You cannot serve both God and mammon. 
And I want us to feel the weight of this because so many of Jesus' teachings, whether they're on enemy love or they're on nonviolence, they feel, at least to me, like they can kind of hover around my life. They can kind of orbit around my life. And just by virtue of proximity to teaching on enemy love, I can start to like feel some sort of transformation. If you took up the practice, like a couple people have in our community of praying for your enemies, which one took you to like identify your enemy and then start to pray for them, um, I, I've received some feedback from this, which is quite lovely, that it's annoying to do this, which was really encouraging to hear that it's so annoying to pray for this person's enemy because it's like starting to reveal what's on the inside and allowing Jesus through the Spirit to change that. So just by per, like, like proximity to some of these teachings, we can feel it. But when it comes to mammon, it's not just like, this is in the orbit of my life. It feels a solar system, galaxies away. And I think the reason that's true is because we are blind to how we are seated right in the middle of mammon. I think it feels so far away and unfamiliar because it's fixed itself into our imagination so securely. In, in fact, I, I would be willing to venture the bet that there is no greater threat to our discipleship, our allegiance to Jesus than mammon. Essentially, I would just echo Jesus' words, you cannot serve both God and mammon. But before we go any further, let's get a proper definition because mammon is a bit of a weird word. When Jesus says you cannot serve both God and mammon, what is he talking about? I, I appreciate how the Catholic philosopher Peter Kreeft defines mammon. He says this, Mammon is the inordinate desire to possess wealth, goods, or objects of abstract value with the intention to keep it for oneself. And this is a lengthy quote, so stay with me, folks. Uh, to, to keep it for oneself far beyond the dictates of basic survival and comfort. And he could end there, but he keeps going because he loves us. It is applied to a markedly high desire for the pursuit of wealth, status, and power. It is natural to a man or a woman to desire external things as means, but mammon makes them, that is means, into ends, into gods. And when a creature is made into a god, it becomes a devil. Now, I got the great privilege of like sitting with this quote for a week and letting it work on me, and I'm hopeful that in like 30 seconds it's doing the same thing to you. That is arresting your spirit to this, this opening line. It is the inordinate desire to possess to acquire on our own terms, such that things that are means become ends in themselves. In the biblical imagination, there is another word for what Kreeft just described, and that word is idolatry. Idolatry is pretty simple. It is where a good thing becomes an ultimate thing. Idolatry is also a sticky topic in Christianity because people can be deeply offended if you start pointing out idols. And I'm not, um, I don't know, particularly reformed, but the gift that we get in the, in the reformed tradition is from this person named John Calvin who talks about our hearts as idol factories. That is, they're constantly transforming means into ends, goods into gods. And I just want to be abundantly clear here. To the best of my understanding, money, possessions, and goods are morally neutral. Like money does not care about how you use money. Mammon does. Or, or do we see this distinction? Is this clear? Like if you, have any, if you actually carry money on your person, it does not give a rip what you do with it. It has no animating life. 
What Jesus is getting at is that there is an animating thing that can change our heart. Jesus is not trying to vilify possessions. His ministry was bankrolled by wealthy women. So Jesus is fine with that. Instead, he's inviting to witness how our possessions, if they become our greatest good, they can animate our ambition and co-opt our allegiance. They can actually take this ambition, this good gift to be given away for the good of others and co-opt it so it comes back to our own self, to get ours, to make a name for ourselves. And, and mammon is the spirit that is animating that movement. Or as Douglas Jones says it, Jesus understood the antithesis or contrast between God's way and mammon's way as the most fundamental distinction in all of life and history. He goes on to make these things. He didn't, he didn't divide the world into left, right, liberal, conservative, envious, entrepreneur, Christian, Muslim. Jesus did not make mammon just a side temptation for a few like we do. Instead, he set it up as this intense dichotomy, this either or, not a both and. And the tension at the heart of this, man, it, it extends all the way back in the human story. And so to close, uh, we're going to go on a little journey from Genesis to Madison Avenue. Are you ready? Genesis to Madison Avenue. Here we go. Uh, it can be pretty easy to dismiss the creation account in Genesis. We can say this is some sort of Bronze Age, mythic babble. It doesn't really mean much or have much substance. And by the way, it's only two chapters. Like, what, what does it actually have to say? Well, whatever your thoughts are of, of the creation account in Genesis, Jesus perceived of Genesis as part of his foundation story. And so when we come to Jesus, we just have to reckon with the Bible that Jesus had committed to memory has this as the foundation story, that God is this abundant creator, this good host in creation that's inviting us to receive it all. Essentially, humanity is crowned with dignity and honor, with the image of God, and then called to push forth blessing into all of creation. L literally, humanity is given everything. They're invited to receive all of the stuff and to show other people and creation what that looks like as a good thing. And it's in that space, that, that story of abundance, that then this intruder comes in, who we know is the serpent. And the intruder does not come wielding a sword or something like that. No, he comes with words. Is that really what God said? Comes with a lie, an accusation to chip away at trust. And in that space, humanity chooses to trust their own definition of good and bad, to, to choose joy and good apart from God. And that story then moves forward. And when we meet Jesus' words, Jesus has these words he's sharing. You cannot serve both God and mammon. They invite us to remember something that's more true, that we actually can live from a place of abundance. We can have eyes that are full of light. That indeed God is not holding out on us. That there's something other than scarcity available. And it's there in the garden where that the desire to possess and acquire and define one's life apart from God emerges. It's, it's not the story of abundance that comes out of the garden. It's the story of scarcity. And we still live with the story of scarcity. You see it littered through the Old Testament. And it skews reality. These are, in a sense, these are the roots of mammon. 
So that's the garden, that's Genesis. But have you ever wondered like what this looks like? Because that can all sound a bit meta and abstract as the Bible often can. So what does it look like when this thing, when mammon gets hold of a human heart? Well, believe it or not, the scriptures give us evidence of this. Uh, it, one of the prophetic um, speeches from Ezekiel, this is in uh, Ezekiel 28, picking up in verse 11. Ezekiel is going to call out who the king of Tyre is. If you're not familiar with your Mediterranean, Mediterranean ancient Near Eastern geography, let's refresh. The Mediterranean Sea, you have North Africa kind of cruises over, then you're going you're gonna to get into what we now see like Gaza and Israel-Palestine, and just north of that is Lebanon. That little space between Israel and Lebanon, that's going to be where the region of Tyre and Sidon is. It becomes this huge place of trade and industry. And there, Ezekiel offers this prophetic word from Yahweh to the king of Tyre. And he basically flatters him. These are, this is some of the language. You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. He then goes on to, to identify all of these biblical stones, like your favorite one, lapis lazuli. You're, you're just basically, you're bejeweled, you're beautiful. But then check this out. Verse 15, you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. Through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the Mount of God and I expelled you garden cherub from among the fiery stones. Verse 17 is where it comes together. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. The trade and the resulting wealth, these gifts that were given were then turned inward they be, were means to like magnify the one who gives good gifts and they became ends in and of themselves. And then this is this type of speech that comes forth from the king of Tyre. This is, this is the language. I am a God. I sit on the throne of a God in the heart of the sea. And I highlight this story to demonstrate a couple of things. One, just to, to like, this is, these are pretty deep roots of mammon. They can go so far into the human heart that we can declare ourselves to be a God. But they can go further. They can begin to animate a community. They can go further than that. They can animate a, siege, a city or even a region. If you've ever been to a city with a financial district, think of maybe Manhattan. There are places there where people give their lives at the throne of mammon. They sacrifice their families there. They sacrifice their margin. They sacrifice themselves in those spaces. I highlight it for that reason to just show how deep it can go, but how pervasive it can be. And I doubt that any of us are, I don't know, sitting in our living rooms going, I am a God. Look at me here. Yes. But you better believe that mammon calls to our hearts. We may not be sitting like on the throne of a maritime empire, but we want our own little kingdoms to prosper. And we indeed have the capacities to curate that type of desire. And maybe it's something as simple as like chasing that Instagram aesthetic. You know, that one that is saying, I really want to have a couple of nice vacations a year, maybe three. I want to look in this way. I want my abs to be chiseled. I want you to actually see that they're underneath this top layer of stuff. 
There's a vision of something there, and maybe it's an aesthetic, maybe it's just middle-class security, maybe for some of us it is luxury. At some level, mammon calls to our hearts, and in the end, scarcity in mammon, they are not resigned to Bronze Age kings. It is still up and running in our own, our own imaginations. And I, I have to believe that um, ignorance is not bliss when it comes to this that we want to know. We actually want to see that this is a story we are living in and saturated in. So if that is the garden, movement from the garden into a human and into a system, um, where do we see it today? Well, uh, here's our collective story that's going to lead us to Madison Avenue. This is going to be, and and by way of that, I want to maybe drop my own little story in here. See, um, I was coming out of undergrad, and at that time, I noticed that a number of my friends were encountering a relative amount of success for selling a nutrition supplement. You can already see where this is going, yeah. And uh, you know, due to a constellation of circumstances and financial pain points, I thought, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna sign up for it. And before I knew it, basically all of my time and my energy and my effort and my relationships were going toward leveling up. I needed to level up. Now, in, in truth, um, if you knew me in that season, you would likely not want to talk to me because I had an important opportunity for you. Uh, it's sad. I, and I'd like to reframe this story about me falling prey to the MLM machine, multi-level marketing, uh, but that would be a lie. Because the truth is, is that I wanted the means to do what I wanted, when I wanted, where I wanted. I, like, they did a really good job at selling a relative amount of success for people younger than me who already were like driving around in luxury sedans and had, I don't, it was just, I was like, oh, I was captivated. And when I look back, it's kind of funny. I'm sitting last night talking to Jess and she's laughing at me and it is kind of funny, except it's my life. And the decisions I made in that season at the end of undergrad are like still impacting us. You you could say it simply, I did not manage my resources well. And you know what happens when you have a bunch of product that nobody wants to buy? You either have to consume it or it literally rots. And sure enough, that's what happened. And at one point I was like so consumed by this thing, I got a message from a friend and they said, hey, I think your Facebook has been hacked. And they were right. It just, it wasn't by like a Russian bot. It was hacked by my heart on mammon. You see, I'm not alone in this. We actually share this collective story. Like I didn't wake up one morning and go, this is the life I want to live. I want to drive a luxury sedan and live in that type of home in that type of neighborhood. It was, it like captured my imagination. It was, I curated that as the good life. I needed a wake up call. And I realized I'm not alone in that because we have scarcity in Genesis. We have imaginations that are captured by mammon and then we just have it in the air that we breathe. So here's a little history lesson to kind of close us out. In the 1930s, the stock market market crashed in this little thing that we now call the Great Depression. And in the Great Depression, there was this cultural trauma that kind of rushed across, the shared cultural trauma that rushed across the nation. And if you were going to sum up the generation coming out of or the children experiencing the dynamics of Great Depression life, there's, I think, a word that would sum it up. It's the word thrift. If you've known somebody who's either a grandparent or a parent who's been touched by the Great Depression, they store up everything. 
I, I like lived and worked on a farm with a, a guy who, this is true of him, and he kept everything because you just might need it. And sometimes he would use it, but most of the time it just sat on the farm doing nothing, rotting. But you might need it. And then this shift took place in the wake of the Great Depression when the U.S. got drawn into World War II. And in a matter of months, there's thousands of men who are being shipped off for training to then go abroad. And all of a sudden, American infrastructure that is turning toward the war machine that is America at this point is like barren. There's not the actual people to run the machines. And so women, for the first time at this point in American history, enter into the workforce in droves and something magical and mystical happens. All of a sudden there is agency for women and this is what goes down. There are checks coming in from soldiers abroad and there's income from the industry. For the first time, you have dual-income homes in mass. And, and just to be sure, like, this is a beautiful thing because the horizon of possibility for women, it expands dramatically. And it brings this economic surplus. But what also happens is that in the wake of World War II, when America did not have the war touched down on the continent of the United States, our infrastructure is intact. So while Jap like Japan is like leveled, a ghost town in some places, and Europe is bombed out, rebuilding, America rises up as this economic and military superpower. And you know what happens in this generation? It booms. Literally, there's a generation called baby boomers. How do you think you get a generation to be called baby boomers? What's your generation? Well, we're the baby boomers. How'd you get that? Because we're booming with babies. They're coming home and there's all of this surplus of goods. And then that is the environment that we enter into Madison Avenue. Have you ever seen the show Mad Men? If not, give it a check. I don't know, it might be worth it for you. But there's a 20th century economist, Victor Lebeau, who makes this note because there's this pesky scarcity mentality that still lives within these people. And so Victor Lebeau makes this comment, our enormously productive economy demands that we make consumption our way of life, that we convert the buying and use of goods into rituals, that we seek our spiritual satisfaction, our ego satisfaction in consumption. We need things consumed, burned up, replaced, and discarded at an ever-increasing rate. Now, if, if you work in marketing and advertising, I bless you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But um, it, here's what we have here. This is the birth of the modern advertising agency. Sigmund Freud, is that a name that's relatively familiar? Um, whatever you think of his psychological schemas, um, he knew something at least about how humans worked. And his nephew, Edward Bernays, came back after talking to his uncle about how people work and then started to leverage all of these psychological schemas to get people to buy stuff. If you want to see this, um, you can find this on the YouTubes. Um, the Century of the Self is the documentary. And essentially, it, it walks you through this development, these different mechanisms to draw us away from, like, not away from scarcity, but deeper into scarcity, to scarcity as consumers, a different type of scarcity mentality. And you get this with things like inadequacy. Basically, um, the stuff that you have is not good enough, or you are not good enough because you don't have the right stuff, so you have inadequacy. And then there's another mechanism, planned obsolescence. If you've ever had an Apple product, you know the story of planned obsolescence, because at some point, your phone just won't hold charge. 
Is it the charger? Maybe I'll buy one of those. Is it the battery? Ooh, now I need to get a new phone. And then, and you're, if it's not planned obsolescence, then it's perceived obsolescence. Well, I have this perfectly good working phone, and it's an iPhone 11, but now what is it like? It's iPhone 28 or something like that? I don't know. But they're bigger. It's like apparently indestructible. It can go underwater. You can do scuba with it. I don't know. It's like, I think I need that thing. It's perceived obsolescence. And beyond that, now it's targeted advertising. This is the air we breathe. How are we doing? Can we just take a little breath here? I told you I was going to be teaching longer. We're 42 minutes in. And you may be wondering, now that we've gone from Genesis to Madison Avenue, what this has to do with Jesus and his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Well, these are mammon's roots. And this is how they've entangled our hearts. And at the end, this is all about formation. Because what fills our heart leads our life. See, sporadic spurts of devotion to Jesus, I just do not think they will stand in the face of tireless advertising, the billions of dollars that go into shaping us into consumers. And I just have to say, I'm not down on consumption. When you come to church, I actually want you to consume. Now, I want you to participate, but I want to consume. You know why? Because I believe that we have a generous Father who wants to offer us life through the Spirit of the living God. There is, consumption is necessary for that to take place. At the end of this, we will take the bread and the cup. Do you know what you're doing? You are consuming Jesus' new covenant of forgiveness and his broken body. This is a part of it. However, we want it to be animated not by scarcity, but by generosity, by abundance. So you might be wondering, like, okay, this sounds interesting. Those are some relatively obscure facts that I find compelling. Um, now, how do I actually contend with mammon? Like, let me just grant you the assumption that it might be somewhere in my heart. Well, the first little thing I would say is we have to wake up. Like, you may not be sucked into an MLM like me and get a message from your friend saying, hey, I think your, your Facebook was hacked. This is me saying, hey, I think your life might be hacked. The challenge is, is that we don't all have an equity of trust where I know that to be true or not. So you might actually have to ask the spirit of the living God, like, what's animating my life? Like, what do I actually want? If you've never asked the question of yourself, regardless of how old you are, what is the vision of my life? Today is a great day to do that. And my guess is you won't have an answer by tomorrow or even this afternoon, but it will set you on a trajectory that might lead toward abundance. Like, what holds your imagination captive? And I don't ask these questions to, like, push us into shame. I just, I want us to embrace abundance. Why do you think we read the generosity liturgy every week? Because we have to have some place to stand against the constant, literally 24, seven hour, 24, seven, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Oof. Like this constant flow. I mean, cookies, anyone? Like you, if you have ever said, yes, I accept cookies, you have agreed to your life being tracked and ads being given to you. It's just there. And I'm not saying cut your phones down. Maybe you need to. I don't know. But we just have to be aware of this. We need to wake up that there are forces seeking to form us into certain type of people. And we can resist that through the spirit of the living God in community. We can actually be a different type of people if you want to be. And so there is one simple way to do this. It is to step into generosity. 
And like I say, weekend, every time that Kate allows me to do the generosity liturgy, I end up talking about, um, I don't care if you're generous here, I just care that you're generous. I would rather you all become generous people with your time or your energy, your effort, or even your finances um, in the city of Des Moines with your friends and this church actually have to close its doors, but you are generous people, then you be stingy but generous here. Is this making sense? And I know, like, I actually don't want that to be true because I want Kate to keep getting paid and Christy and stuff like that. I, I want to have, like, be able to provide for our family. But this is the level of severity. Like, I, at some point, that's rhetorical flourish. But at another, like, I would much rather us be a generous people and known for that than be a wealthy church and just be deprived in any other way because generosity does some stuff. The uh, Canadian philosopher Christian Smith says it this way, rather than leaving generous people on the short end of an unequal bargain, practices of generosity are actually likely instead to provide generous givers with essential goods in life, happiness, health, and purpose which money and time themselves cannot buy. This is an empirical fact well worth knowing. And if you want to know all the data there, read the paradox of generosity. So how do we contend with, with mammon? We wake up and then we interrogate our lives and we ask, where is the spirit inviting me to be generous? We wake up, we interrogate our lives and we let the spirit draw something out in us. Mm -hmm.